Beloved, in our culture, both outside the church and in the church, we generally avoid the words death and dead. I know in my case, I always, when I speak of my beloved Margie, I say she went home to be with the Lord. I do that in the church. I do that outside the church in every context. Uh, there are other phrases that are a bit more uh, euphemisms. Uh, they, she, he or she departed. They passed away, uh, which might even beg the question, departed where? Uh, passed on to what? And while we tend to avoid the subject, death is inescapable. And people want answers. They want answers. Who am I? Where did I come from? And more to the point, where am I going? Because as Solomon writes and tells us in Ecclesiastes, God has set eternity in the heart of man. We look for something beyond. Every man and woman, every human being looks for something beyond. And in a theological construct confines, this is called the doctrine of eschatology, literally the study of last things. That's one component to be sure. There are many others as well. And with that in mind, beloved, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Our text begins in verse 13. By way of review, in the first three chapters, we learn that this young Thessalonian church, we know it's young when we go to the companion birth passages in Acts 15 through 17, this young fledgling church is a model church. They're an example church. They have a faith that functions. They have a love that labors, and they have a hope that hangs on. They're a model church, and as we continue on in chapter 1 and into chapter 2, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were model shepherds. They were shepherding sanctified sheep. And in chapter 4, Paul moves from the doctrine to the duty, from the right belief to the right behavior, from the way to God to one's walk with God. His theme, his purpose from chapter 4, verse 1 and forward, is captured at the macro level in verse 1, how to please God. God's will is your sanctification, both morally and doctrinally. And what the apostle does in chapter 4, he picks topics that are foundational to all human experience. Sex, work, and death. Sex, work, and death. He gives a call to purity. At the end of chapter, at the end of verse 3 through verse 8, he gives a biblical call to a biblical work ethic in verses 9 through 12, which takes us into the third topic, namely death. And the fact that the Thessalonians were a model church, they were an example church, the fact that they had good, strong convictions didn't mean that they don't have concerns. The fact that they're mature even for their young age, doesn't mean that they don't have questions. And apparently during the short period of Paul, Silas, and Timothy departing from them in the writing of this letter, some of the Thessalonian believers had passed away. They had departed. They had more, correctly to the point, gone home to be with the Lord. They had died. And these young believers didn't have the full foundational understanding of what that means at the early phase here in the church. So they have concerns and they have questions. Namely, what is the fate of our departed loved ones? Are they going to lose out somehow because they died before Lord Jesus came back again? And so what Paul does 
Here in verse 13, as he goes forward, he moves from exhortation somewhat back to instruction, from how to walk with God to how to hope in God. And this is when dealing with that which man fears most, namely death, a topic of great interest and pressing difficulty to anyone. Beloved, listen as I read. I'm going to read the first two and a half verses of chapter 1 to set the stage of the sanctification. Pick it up in verse 13. I'm going to read all the way to chapter 5, verse 11, because it is from 4.13 to 5.11 that Paul deals at great length with this topic of death and the end times and the second coming of the Lord. This is the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now jump to the third topic, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should not overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of light nor of darkness." So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. This is the word of God, beloved, that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, our text this morning is verses 13 and 14. This will be an introductory sermon. It'll be an introductory sermon for this entire section stretching from 4.13 to 5.11 and really set the stage as we go to the rest of what is called these eschatological epistles, First and Second Thessalonians. Every chapter 
uh, except the last ones. Seven out of the eight chapters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians have a reference to the second coming. Around 25% of this first letter deals with end times, and about 40% of the second letter deals with the same. The day of the Lord, which we saw there in chapter 5, verse 1, that's mentioned five times in the New Testament, 40%, two out of those five, are in these two letters. And beloved, what we have, the outline for the message this morning, verses 13 and 14, is the purpose and the promise. The purpose and the promise of the particular element of which Paul is speaking, but really this is also the purpose of eschatology and the promise of eschatology. Beloved, in this 2,000-year-old letter, the apostle speaks to all of us who have stood in the soft dirt next to an open grave. And God's purpose, beloved, here for you and for me as we would study this is to strengthen our hope by stimulating the theology upon which that rest, that hope rests. So, first, verse 13, the purpose of eschatology. You see, as part of the watering down and frothiness of modern Christendom, the visible church seems to deal and focus more and more on this age and less and less on the age to come. And in all of the eschatological portions of Scripture, in all of especially the eschatological, eschatological portions of the New Testament, the end times passages, God teaches us not to look for signs, not to identify signs. He teaches us how to live and how to be ready for the end, how to be ready to die and to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Now, the purpose of end times passages is to give clarity and encouragement, not to give complexity and anxiety. Eschatology is not a puzzle. It's not a mystery. It's not a covering. It's an uncovering. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, the uncovering of Jesus Christ. Beloved, in the end times passages, in the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24 and 25, Mark chapter 13, a portion of Luke 21, John 14, the list goes on and on. We are taught faithfulness in the present. In the present. We are taught that Christianity, true Christianity, is to be characterized by endurance. The concern is righteous living and readiness. The concern is not dates and signs. The concern, we could say it this way, is Christian lives today, not kiliastic charts for tomorrow. And if you want an explanation of the word kiliastic, you can Google it or you can come up and talk to me afterwards. Beloved, the point is we must not engage in wild and sensational speculation like some of the Thessalonians had, were beginning to do. And that will blossom or whatever the negative antonym of blossom is will happen in the second one. And at the same time, there's another area we should not allegorize and ignore. In fact, the book of Revelation, what's special about it? Well, it's the last book of the Bible and it's the one book of the 66 books in the Bible that God gives a specific promise, a specific blessing for those who read and heed the content therein. So with all of this in mind, anytime we approach any portion of scripture, certainly in the case of end times, we keep the plain things main and the main things plain. We focus what's the primary and what is clear. And Paul 
Beloved, here in 1 Thessalonians, similar to the other end times passages, he's not providing esoteric information for a rarefied crowd. He is preparing all the children of God to live and to witness in a hostile world. And in a word, he says, stay calm and be ready. For example, Mark 13, verse 34, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gave a parable picture. He said, like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. And the application imagery there is we are slaves. We are to be slaves who are working. We are to be doorkeepers who are watching. So now into our text. The great truths, even in verse 13, beloved, shepherd us, shepherd you and me away from ignorance and hopelessness into knowledge and hope, rooted in the absolute certainty and guaranteed promise of the second coming of Christ. Uh, Paul, even as I indicated before, Given this is chapter 4, he's already mentioned the second coming of Christ three times. Chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 13. Now he expands in greater detail and new instruction, new detail, new information, new knowledge that the Thessalonian believers did not have prior to this. And his stated purpose in verse 13 is, I want you to be educated and I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be educated with knowledge, and I want you to be encouraged with hope. First, Paul says to the Thessalonians, God says to you and me, I want you to be educated with knowledge. In his writings, Paul traces many problems, beloved, of Christian faith and life to ignorance. And as such, knowledge is the antidote and the key to many blessings. And this is nothing new under the sun. Hosea 4, 6 God says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But look at verse 13. Paul here, as he transitions from work to death, says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brethren. I don't want you to be unaware. I literally don't want you to be ignorant. The Greek word is agnaeo. It's the word from which we got our English word ignorant, no knowledge or lack of knowledge. And by the way, this is a common approach. After this, remember, 1 Thessalonians is either the first letter the Apostle Paul wrote or maybe somewhere with Galatians. But five times after he writes this very early epistle, he'll use the same formula. Three times in Corinthians, twice in, uh, when he writes to Rome. And each time he uses this formula, he adds the affectionate address, brethren. Brothers and sisters. This is the ninth appearance of that affectionate brethren here in 1 Thessalonians. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Ignorance is bliss. Well, some pain, the kind of pain that I like, is weakness leaving the body, but not all pain. Perhaps some ignorance is bliss, but not all ignorance is bliss. This kind of ignorance, this kind of a lack of knowledge is not. Some ignorance, we could say it this way, <clears throat> some ignorance is culpable, some ignorance is neutral. And the ig ignorance on the part of the Thessalonians is neutral. It's not that they're negligent, rebellious, or stupid. 
They simply don't know. But as a result of this dearth of knowledge, of this absence of knowledge, it's resulting in speculation imbalance and will transmogrify into hysteria, into parousia hysteria as we saw before. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. That's a euphemism, a biblical euphemism for those who have died. Three consecutive verses, 13, 14, and 15, he refers to the dead in Christ as those who are asleep. Our English word cemetery comes from the Greek word koimaomai. So basically, a cemetery, cemeteries are dormitories for the dead. And those asleep in Christ are dealt with in verses 13 and 14. Those who are awake in Christ, the dead in Christ, are dealt with in verses 13, 13 and 14. Those who are alive at his second coming are dealt with in verses 15 through 17. And even the grammar that he uses here of those asleep in Christ, it implies a future awakening. This is the same kind of dynamic. Do you remember what Jesus said when he went up to Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, so that he stinketh, the way King Jim would say? Jesus says, John 11, verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. That's the kind of dynamic, that's the kind of terminology that Paul is using here. That is a biblical, soul-comforting euphemism. And there is theology behind it. We can think of the common refrain in our culture, may he or she rest in peace, rest in peace, excuse me. Now, that is a true statement, but only if you are in Christ. The Bible holds no hope for those outside of Christ who rest in peace. And this being asleep in the Lord, just a brief word on this, this is not soul sleep. In other words, it's not an unconsciousness. There are some uh, cults and there's some perhaps even very aberrant Christians that understand this as soul sleep. That's not the case at all. Calvin rightly said, the reference here is not to the soul but to the body. For the dead body rests in the tomb as on a bed until God raises the person up. You see, those who are asleep in Christ continue their relationship with the Lord in heaven while their bodies sleep in the grave. Now, we know from a scientific standpoint, their bodies rot in the grave. But ultimately, the spiritual and physical truth behind it is their bodies sleep in the grave when cast in the entire picture. That's why the Apostle Paul, for example, when he wrote his second letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, he says, we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Or, to drive a stake into the heart of a misunderstanding of the erroneous thinking of soul sleep, what did Jesus say to the repentant thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. Not that you will be asleep and then some thousands of years later your soul will awake. No, your soul will be with me today in heaven. So beloved, mark this, this biblical metaphor of sleeping implies two things. It implies rest from labor, and it implies a glorious awakening. The death of a believer is nothing more than sleep, and sleep is not to be feared. So 
Paul says that he wants the church. God says he wants you and I to be educated with knowledge. Secondly, at the end of verse 13, he wants us to be encouraged with hope. Hope in death. And that's the sermon title this morning, Hope in Death. You see, we know from the previous part of chapter 4, lust does not adorn the gospel. Laziness does not adorn the gospel. Hopeless grief does not adorn the gospel. Ignorance was the root. Hopeless grief is the fruit. Verse 13, he continues on. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that, purpose statement, you may not grieve. Mark Twain quipped, the trouble with the world is not that people don't know too little, but they know too many things that ain't so. Beloved, when it comes to death, we want to know what's so and what ain't so. Paul says, so that you may not grieve, continuing, as do the rest who have no hope. Who are the rest? Pagans, the heathen, the unsaved, the outsiders, back from verse 12. The rest, the same terminology that Paul will use later when he writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2, 3, Paul there says, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So he's talking about pagans. And beloved, the pagan world at the time of Paul and the pagan world at our time, in our day, is filled with hopelessness. The Third century B.C. Greek poet Theocritus said, quote, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. The atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell in the early 20th century wrote, brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rests on its relentless way, rolls on its relentless way. For man condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gate of darkness. Hopelessness, hopeless. And beloved, that is the kind of grief that God commands us not to show. God does not condemn all grief. He corrects a certain kind of grief. God does not prohibit grief. God prohibits, in the life of a Christian, hopeless grief. We're not called to be chiseled stones, chiseled stoics. I mean, losing a loved one is like losing a part of yourself. It would be most unnatural, inhuman, and deeply wrong to not grieve when we lose someone we love. That's why... The Apostle Paul told the church in Rome, Romans 12, 15, weep with those who weep. And in the same way, anger can be righteous anger or it can be unrighteous anger. So also grief can be righteous grief or unrighteous grief, hopeless grief or healthy grief. Our services to commemorate the going home of a believer. We don't call them funerals. We call them celebrations. We celebrate, to be sure, but we celebrate through the tears of personal sorrow and pain. 
And even here, the contrast between these griefs is not a level or a degree of sorrow and grief. The contrast is between Christian hope and pagan hope or lack thereof. And even as I was thinking about this, we can ask the questions, do Christians grieve less? Does a believer grieve less than an unbeliever? I would say no. I would say, in fact, a believer grieves more than an unbeliever because by God's grace and mercy, we love more because he first loved us. The key difference here is we do not grieve as those without hope. So God condemns hopeless grief and God commends healthy grief. And isn't this part of our struggle? It's very easy to say, yes, I believe in that, but the struggle is that we fail to apply what we believe. We need to be like the Jamaican brother who said, turn that frown the other way around. Everything will be all right. For the believer, beloved, it will be all right even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And don't quote me on that. I'm going I'm to erase <laughs> the tape. I remember the uh, summer before my final year, before my final year of undergraduate, after I did some other work, at the end I had about a month left and I was down in California with my beloved uh, Margie, um, you know, with her family, and I basically had to take a job for a month, so there was a person that owned a roofing company that went to my beloved Margie and her parents' church. So I worked as a roofer for a little over a month. And uh, it was an interesting dynamic. It was real nice at the end. He said, he said, he, he appreciated my work, my work ethic. He said, hey, if that engineering thing doesn't work out, you, know, you got a job here. I, I appreciated it. And when you're roofing, you have to tear off the old roof, the roof that's maybe been destroyed by termites, and repair it to be able to lay down the new roof. But better than that, beloved, bring in the application here. It is better to exterminate the termites of ignorance and the termites of despair before they destroy the roof. So, beloved, we do not grieve like the heathen. We don't mourn like the pagans. So that is the purpose of this passage here, verse 13, and the purpose of eschatology as it applies to death. Second, there's the promise of death, the promise of eschatology for the Christian Death is only temporary. As sleep is followed by an awakening, so also for the believer, death will be followed by resurrection. John 14, verses 1 through 3, even tying together the kind of purpose that I was mentioning before of all eschatological passages. As Jesus was in the upper room discourse talking to his disciples, John 14, 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Beloved, that is the hope that is rooted in the resurrection and the promised second coming of Christ. And there is no other hope. Friend, there is no other hope. There is no other way other than the blessed hope, the great hope which rests and is available for any man or woman that would come to Christ. <laughs> he continues verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14, he says, 
For, this is the reason why, what he just said in verse 13, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. The grammar here, we could translate this as since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. It's a construction that says this is an established truth. Uh, John Stott called this the irreducible core of the gospel. And what a great cloud of witnesses. The gospel is given life and feet and legs in the New Testament, of course, but the gospel message was there in the Old Testament as well. Job said, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take a stand on the earth. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost at the birth of the church focused on the resurrection of Jesus. Paul preached the resurrection in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to Governor Felix and to King Agrippa. Now, having said that, as we think of what we just said here, Jesus died and rose again. You know what's fascinating? Nowhere in the New Testament does it ever refer to Jesus as being asleep. That biblical metaphor is only applied to believers, and it is almost always the language used when it describes us. You see, because Jesus died, because he endured the full horror of death, he transforms death for you and for me. He died so that you and I merely sleep. And as such, beloved, your death, the death of your loved one, my beloved Margie's death simply becomes a portal into glory. For those without hope, death in Scripture is pictured like a poisonous insect. It's like a serial killer. But for we who are in Christ, death is a gateway to eternal life. And this is the foundation for Isaiah, again, same thing, looking even forward to what would transpire when the promised Messiah would come. Isaiah said, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2. Although we die, one day we will awake to everlasting life. Abraham, we know, obeyed God's command or was willing to obey God's command to sacrifice his only son because he knew God is able to raise men even from the dead. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's the foundation upon which our hope rests. Continuing in verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, even so, God, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, who have fallen asleep through Jesus. Interesting, two times here in verse 14, he refers to Jesus just as Jesus, not the Lord, not Jesus Christ, not Jesus the Lord. He's emphasizing his humanity because what he's saying here is what happened to your Savior will happen to you. God did not abandon his son to the grave. Therefore, he will not abandon you, his son, his adopted son, his adopted daughter, to the grave. 2 Corinthians 4, 14, same truth inspired Paul to write, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. 
And just a side note here, it's actually, it does not directly say here that those who are dead in Christ, those who are asleep in Christ are resurrected. That's presumed, that's a little bit of uh, forced eisegesis. Of course, they're resurrected because they are able to come back with him. Souls from heaven, bodies from earth. We'll get more on that when we get into the next verses, 15 and 4. The souls are in heaven, their bodies are asleep in the earth, and they will be joined together. Beloved, dear friend, the empty tomb of Jesus removes heartbreak, and it replaces it with hope. The resurrection of Jesus throws open doors of hope for people who trust in him. Again, because God did not abandon Jesus in death, he will not abandon the dead in Christ. In verse 16, look at what it says there, the dead in Christ. I never really grabbed that phrase before until I started studying this passage right here, the dead in Christ. That's the only appearance of the dead in Christ. This gives me a new love even for the word dead and for death. It's the only reference in all of Scripture. And, of course, the very most personal illustration myself is my beloved Margie is numbered among the dead in Christ. And the list could go on and on of our loved ones who have died and are now asleep in Christ. Our hope is grounded in the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, coronation, and second coming of Christ. That is the ground of our hope. He, be, he brings forgiveness to the rebellious. Pardon to the iniquitous. Hope to the hopeless. And he practically, right here, right now, brings peace to unsettled hearts. Beloved, the Christian dead will come with him. That's what it says here in verse 14. And the Christian living will join them in verses 15 through 17. And the great hymn that we sing, Living he loved me, dying he saved me, and buried he carried my sins far away. Rising he justified freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day, O glorious day. That's the promise that we have here, the promise of God to you and to me. The story is told of the cemetery evangelist. It was a woman who became suddenly and unexpectedly widowed. Her name was Mrs. Robertson in the story. Her husband died from a sudden heart attack. She was alone, afraid, and facing an unknown uh, future. And as such, her grief knew no bounds. In the weeks that followed the funeral, the, sto store, uh, the uh, story goes on, a Christian neighbor lady of Mrs. Roberts watched her every day leave the house to go and visit the grave of her husband. Each day as she left for the cemetery, she was in grief, untempered grief, lonely for her husband. Her despair deepened. Uh, apparently, the Mrs. Roberts was a fine, upstanding woman and a good neighbor, but she had no personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because she was not a forgiven, adopted daughter of the Most High God, she had no hope. She was swimming and saturated in the hopelessness of the world of her day, as of our day, and as of Paul's day as well. She, because she had no hope in the resurrection, she had no hope for her future. 
But one day this Christian lady who had previously, prior to the departure to the death of Mrs. Roberts, of Mr. Roberts, she had evangelized her and tried to tell her the gospel, but there was, it was met with a stone wall. But she again went back to the woman with the good news that even though she was a sinner, even though she had no hope, there is hope. Jesus Christ came. God was born as a baby. God in human form, tempted just as we are tempted, yet without sin. He was buried himself. He suffered death on our behalf as a substitute. He experienced death so that we don't have to ultimately experience the eternal spiritual death. He rose from the grave and lives victorious even now. And as such, at this time, in the good, kind providence of God, Mrs. Roberts listened to the good news of the gospel and embraced Jesus Christ as her Savior. And she realized that death does not have the final victory. Mrs. Roberts remembered that not only was she, she wasn't the only one at the cemetery, that she remembers seeing many other people weeping over and talking to cold stones, trying in vain to cling to relationships they once enjoyed. She experientially understood their despair, but now she held a truth. Now she holds a truth that they desperately needed to hear and believe, and that is how Mrs. Roberts became the cemetery evangelist. She would, again, continue to go every day to the cemetery, but this time with her little New Testament and a few choice, well-chosen words. And this transformed woman comforted mourners as they wept and offered them the very same message that had given her life meaning and hope and the newness of life that she enjoyed in Christ, that Jesus rose from the dead and that in the place of hopeless despair, there can be perfect certainty and perfect hope. Beloved, dear friend, the absolute certainty of Christ's death and resurrection and return with his rescued children is the source of hope, and it's a source of great comfort. I'm going to jump forward to this. We'll cover this, but look at verse 18. Uh, Verses 13 and 14 deals with those asleep in Christ at his second coming. Verses 15 through 17 deals with those awake in Christ at the time of his coming, the dead and the alive. And verse 18 is the closing application of this initial part that is given to both. Verse 18, Paul says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He doesn't say, intrigue each other. He doesn't say alarm each other. He doesn't say annoy one another with these words. He says comfort one another. And beloved, again, this is not given to just the pastor, just the elders, just the deacons, just the Titus II woman. This is given to all the saints to be able to minister to all the other saints with these words of comfort, with this knowledge, with this hope. This is every Christian assimilating the word of God and every Christian surrounded by the people of God in the church of God, which is the local church, which for us is our beloved Santan Bible Church. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing, being preached by a frail man, and may God add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word. Please join me 
as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you for the gospel message, the gospel message that begins with the reality, with the truth of us in our sin and of your sinless, perfect, obedient life, of your horrific, agonizing death at the cross, agonizing on the physical side, and Lord, even more painful, even infinitely more agonizing and painful on the emotional side when you experience the wrath of God on our behalf. And we praise you and thank you, Lord, that every word you've given us in the Bible will come true in its due time according to your plan and according to your purpose. Thank you, Lord, for these words of hope, for these ancient words which are so perfectly relevant and applicable and hopeful and encouraging and challenging even some 2,000 years later. And Lord, as we now approach the communion table, we are again reminded to focus on this great sacrifice when you allowed your blood to be shed and the great promise you gave that one day we will drink of the, you will drink of the cup again with us in your kingdom. And in the meantime, Lord, we get to do this together as an obedient form of corporate and individual worship. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and we approach the communion table. Amen.